This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. And hello, Hearts of Oak. Thank you once again for joining us on another guest interview coming to you a few days before you get it. And it is someone who I've enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed his YouTube site, History Debunked, and it is Simon Webb. Simon, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, that's fine. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you on. And Many things are on that website. People can go and History Debunked, or I think the actual handle is History Debunked Simon Webb. You can go and follow that on YouTube if you don't already. Uh, I'll also bring up a number of Simon's books. He is a prolific writer on history and also on some fiction. We'll, We'll touch on that, but it is all available there on Amazon. We'll put the links in the description. So if you're watching it on any video platforms or podcasting, if you listen on the go, everything will be there in the description for you to click to watch on YouTube, on Facebook, uh, to click to the Amazon link to see all the range of books he has published. Everything is there. So, but it is um, one, and of course, the website, simon web.com. Again, make sure and follow that and make use of that. Now, Simon, we'll get into the channel and a lot of what you've been putting out, uh, the various aspects of history, the education, lots to talk about. But if I can start with you, uh, if you could just take a moment or two and introduce yourself to our viewers. Sure. I mean, there's not a great deal to say about me, really, in all honesty. I I um, worked at all sorts of different things over the years. I spent quite a long time abroad, and I'm married with a daughter who's now grown up, and I've done a lot of writing, journalism, and so on. That's about it, really. What... Under a start, I think History Debunked has been going for, what, three or four years? That's right. You have 70 million views on it. Can I ask you, what on earth came into your mind to decide that you wanted to put some videos together and release those regularly? Um, Yeah, how did that thinking come about? Well, it was partly because I was working on a particular book um, uh, called Myths, um, you know, that have changed our perception of history and I thought it'd be interesting to do a short video on each one of them just 10 minutes at a time and I put that up and that was people were interested in that and then I started doing stuff in a more spontaneous way a little bit of ad-libbing just talking about things that I'd seen in the newspapers and things that interested me and it just developed from that over the last few years. I I guess that you weren't well, n- none of us know where something will go when we when we start out. Um, but I guess something which you just were doing out of your own interest has suddenly got to that stage where you've got, what, 170,000 subscribers on YouTube, right. 70 million views. Um, wh- when you sit and think about that, what uh, is... It's is it surprising? Is it what you expected? Is it what? What do you think when you kind of look at some of those figures? 
I didn't expect it for a moment. I thought it was simply going to be a little thing that I would do in my spare time and perhaps you know a few people would watch. I had no idea at all that so many people would be interested. And I think it's um, grown in popularity because a lot of the time I'm talking about and speculating about subjects that people f are fearful of raising out loud. I don't think I say anything particularly offensive, or at least I hope not, but I talk about the sort of things a lot of people are interested in, a lot of people speak to me about, but they normally do it in a hushed tone of voice. They lean forward like that and the voice goes down. And you know immediately they're going to say something they don't want other people to hear. So I'm saying the things that people think about but don't like to talk about. Well, tell us about that because I guess that means you're filling a void. People go to a source because they're not necessarily getting it elsewhere. And what you're putting it out provides something which uh, which is lacking. Is that a fair assessment? It is a fair assessment. And the other thing is that I never moderate. I never delete people. Anybody at all, if you've ever looked at the comments on my videos, you will find there's an awful lot of people that have got Jews on the brain. They're very much into anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Now, I lived in Israel for years. It's no secret at all that I'm a Zionist. I cannot abide that sort of thing. But really, if you're going to have something uncensored, it's going to be uncensored. Once you start saying, well, I don't like the sound of that, I'm going to cross that out, it's really, you know, then you're no longer, it's not free speech anymore. And I think people appreciate that. A lot of the reason I attract so many conspiracy theorists, particularly people that believe in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, is a lot of those people get their comments deleted on uh, other YouTube channels. So I've kind of attracted some people that, that like to be able to speak their mind. Uh, uh, kind of quite similar here, actually. We uh, let people speak their mind. I would also say I'm a, a Zionist, so it's been interesting engaging with people who have a, a different point of view and trying to understand that. And I guess part of what you put out is about facts, and facts is a concept which does not really mean a lot. Uh, truth also is a concept that doesn't mean a lot anymore um, and is up to each individual what they think. Um, so, I mean, tell us about because history has always been about a factual story, factually telling what has happened. Uh, it seems now to be quite different. Yes, partly because the very idea of um, objectivity and rational thought is under assault. It's a key um, part of critical race theory that the Enlightenment was a bad idea and that rather than think objectively and rationally about things, we should instead listen to people's lived experiences and that that has more validity. But to me, that's absolute nonsense. To me, there are facts. Some things did happen. Some things didn't happen. And there is such a thing as objective reality. And I think that we should analyse it rationally. And that is absolute anathema to many people today. Well, I guess they it's... They see it as telling a a story or putting an agenda forward um, and not simply saying someone lived at this time and this is what happened and helping fill in those gaps. But it does seem often that telling a historical story is about putting forward an agenda as opposed to leaving a factual understanding. 
Yes, I've noticed that very much. So an awful lot of the history that we see now is being told from a particular political, racial or social perspective, <clears throat> which I suppose is, is all, I mean, we all do that to a certain extent. We all of us tell our own stories when we're talking about history, <clears throat> because you simply cannot tell every single historical fact. You have to select facts and leave some facts out. So that can't be helped. When you're putting videos together, how do you, is it just the stuff you want to talk about? Is it comments you've come across and think, actually, I need to address that? Or is it a mixture of all of those? It's a mixture of them all. And sometimes I see things which are so grotesque and nobody else seems to be saying anything. So I think that it, perhaps I'll just mention it, that I'll, I'll see something which I think well, surely people must realise that this is nonsense and I don't see it said, so I think I'll say it. Part of the, I guess, the agenda, one of the agendas that we face is an agenda called multiculturalism. Um, and this is something which you've talked about. How does that new concept fit in with a presentation of history? How do you see kind of that clash? And is that, I guess, the end of history of facts? Well, the clash is this. Um, to begin with, when we started having large-scale immigration to this country, the key word was integration. So newcomers came and they adapted to our ways and they tried to live like us. Then that became seen as being a bad thing. Instead, they should be able to live in the way that they want and follow their own traditions. That means fragmentation of a society. And it also means that each of those communities want to have their own history and have their own interpretation of British history. And so it ended up in a little bit of a mess and you get friction between different ethnicities and between the different ethnicities and the white majority. And I think that it would have been better had we stuck with integration. Well, I certainly find that coming from Northern Ireland, uh, which is a very monoculture. Um, I didn't see that as an issue. Then I come to London, been in London 20 years, and London doesn't seem to have a history of its own. It seems to be a history of everyone else. And it's a strange concept um, that you have the London, the historical London, which you can go and see the statues, the landmarks, but then you have this new history which is being made, which is about anything and everything from that society. And is that a, it's something that we've seen in the UK and in some other countries, but in other countries, if you look at somewhere like Japan, you kind of get the opposite, where it's a celebration of their own culture. Um, how do you kind of see that probably happening a lot in Europe, where culture of countries begins to be downgraded and disappear, while you've got other nations actually still champion and see their culture as something positive? Yes, I think that uh, monocultural societies tend to be the most stable societies when everybody has a common set of beliefs and a common religion <coughs> and a, a common set of values. I think those societies tend to be quiet and peaceful. And I think that when you have people with different religions or different aspects of a, of a religion, I think there's really going to be friction yeah, I've certainly seen that in London. <laughs> I was going, yes. But, I mean, you've probably no straight to it. 
I was in uh, Northern Ireland 50 years ago. And of course, there's a slight difference, isn't there, between the uh, Catholic and the Protestant perspective on things. There is. And and again, you have a struggle of telling history there. Um, But of course, that clash is less of a religious clash and more of a territorial clash. But again, you have a whole confusion and I guess stepping on eggshells with understanding what exactly is the history of Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland or Ireland. Um, And I guess that that kind of fear, that's what we now face with multiculturalism. It's a fear of saying something that actually may be seen as incorrect or hurtful to someone else. Well, that's absolutely true. And if I were a younger person and had to worry about a job or a reputation, I might be a little more cautious in what I say. But of course, I'm old. I'm not going to live forever. I don't care anymore. But, I mean, thinking now about Ireland, that is also changing because there's an awful lot of immigrants being moved into the Republic, for example. I mean, Miss Ireland, the year before last, was a Nigerian, and the fastest athletes in the Irish Republic are black, you know, black African. And so they are going to be experiencing some of the same things, I think, that we've seen in London eventually. Ireland Ireland has been a shock to me seeing the huge change in the society from being a Catholic conservative culture that's a monoculture where Irish history, Irish identity is celebrated. Quarter of America think they're Irish. And yet that has been completely turned on its head over the last 25 years. And it is I guess, uh, how do you look on that with from a historical point of view, seeing that big societal change in such a short space of time? It's a tragedy because Ireland was really the epitome of the Celtic fringe. They, they, they were the inheritors of the of Celtic tradition, the uh, one of the earliest European traditions, and it all survived in Ireland. You had the language, you had the religion, you had the customs, you had the belief in various supernatural things. And yet that's all fading away. And it's as though people are now beginning to say to themselves, oh, well, we, we mustn't just stick to this. We must be international. We'll, we must accept Yoruba customs and we must accept Arab customs as well. Uh, I think it's a shocking thing. It doesn't really go both ways, does it? Uh, in my trips to Africa, I can't imagine them demanding that Irish culture is celebrated in in a village somewhere. But it it does seem to be one way. It is one way. It is one way. We, we the host, always have to adapt. And if we don't, we're we're described as being racist or intolerant. Um, Let me just step back a little bit and ask you about, you've written a lot of books. Uh, Tell us about that and about maybe the different focuses you've had on different aspects of history. Yeah, I've written quite a few books. Um, A lot of them are about crime, um, terrorism, and so on. And they were particular interests of mine. For example, I wrote a book about um, terrorism in Victorian and Edwardian London, because that's something that, that intrigued me. Uh, generally speaking, I, I mean, I, I write books on all sorts of things, whether it's technology, uh, history of Roman London, folklore. Yeah, I've got a wide range of interests myself, and I can usually find a publisher that will publish a book that I write. And even Westerns. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell us about that. Different... Yes, yes. <laughs> Some are under my own name, but a lot of them are under really improbable sort of names like uh, Fenton Sadler and so on and Harriet Cade. You know, they, people make up these names for the you know, if they want to be authors of Westerns. So, yeah, I've written about 60 Westerns. Wow. It's... I think there is a, a huge gap in in the market, not only for adults, but also for children. When you see what is popular, which is often quite narrow, uh, of course, we have, we've just had Remembrance Sunday. You've got World War I, World War II, uh, talked about a lot, but you look back just 20 years from World War I in the Boer War, and nothing's talked about it. You've got kind of those gaps in our history that seem to be unknown to generations later. Um, tell us about that, because um, you obviously are trying to highlight those, I guess, more forgotten areas. Yes, I am. And um, I was thinking, you know, I've written uh, books about terrorism, as I say, and it's interesting that the world wars both tend to um, overshadow anything that happened in and about. For example, thinking now of terrorism in Britain, there was an IRA campaign in 1919-1920 in Britain. It's completely forgotten now. No one remembers there was a lot of arson and shooting. And of course, there was an IRA bombing campaign in 1939. And nobody remembers that either now, because things that happened close to a world war are forgotten. Those two world wars overshadow anything at all that happens in the run-up to them. And we tend to forget anything in the 20s and 30s, just focus on the First and Second World War. But it, it's it's true. You think of World War One, it's unknown what happened bef- between World War Two, and then you think of 70s, 80s, and um, and there are. Why is that? There there must be there must be an interest in the those who write history on those. Is it simply because our education system? doesn't address them uh, is it i mean where does our education system fit into these gaps and helping the future generations understanding who they are and where they've come from i'm awfully afraid that they don't i'm, I'm very much afraid that the children at school now don't learn really where they came from or about their background certainly when i was at school i did we, we i was taught i knew that i was english I knew about the British Empire. I knew where I fitted into the scheme of things. That's all breaking down now when they're teaching history. I don't think that that people really want to think about the empire, let alone glory, glory in it. The Industrial Revolution used to be a big thing that we were proud of because it started in England. That's being seen as a bad thing now because it triggered climate change. So children aren't learning really who they are and where they're from. Why is that feeling here? I mean, I think of uh, my my wife's Bulgarian. I lived in Bulgaria a couple of years. And it is a, a country, a culture that is deeply patriotic, that has a strong sense of their history and where they are. You've got all the talk about the conflict with the Ottoman Empire, with the Turks, about with Greece. I mean, everyone grows up understanding what the nation is and who they are and why they're there. Why is that missing in the UK? Or is it not just a UK problem? 
it is a UK problem, it's immigration. Because talking about the British Empire makes people feel bad in case uh, the black pupils feel left out or in case they feel that they're being got at and because of the history of slavery. So the whole of the history that's taught in the British educational system is altered to cater for that. And of course, when we've just had Black History Month, uh, I was um, I was saddened that uh, Chirk Scheinpardoff talked about that all month. Uh, and it, it's, it, it seems very much when you focus on one group that it pits one against the other instead of it just being about, well, we are in the UK, we're British, that's where you live, whether you're born here or you come here. I, I'm not born in England. I've come here from another part of the United Kingdom, but I want to celebrate and understand the the culture of where I am. And that I see that very much pitting groups against each other and simply causes more divisions when you say we'll celebrate something on the basis of the colour of the person as opposed to on the basis of achievements. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But it comes back to what I was saying about integration versus multiculturalism. In America, they used to call it the melting pot because the idea was that immigrants would arrive and no matter what their background, they would melt in and become indistinguishable from other Americans. They would become American. That was abandoned in favour of the idea of the salad bowl in which all the ingredients might be shaken up, but they retain their individuality. And that's the route which we're going along in this country, that there's no longer any idea of a melting pot or integration. Instead of becoming British, these people remain Jamaican, they remain Pakistani. And I know this, I've worked at colleges and I've known young men that were born in this country and they describe themselves as Pakistani or Jamaican. That's their identity. They don't identify. Although they were born in Britain, they don't believe themselves to be British. And even worse, if I can add to that <laughs> gloom, that I also have talked to many people who are born here from Nigeria or Pakistan or Ghana or the Caribbean, and they maybe have even never been to the country of their parents, and yet they identify seemingly as much or if not more with that than here. Yeah. And that I I that I can't compute that level of disconnect. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. Yeah, I've, I've seen this uh, an awful lot. But they're encouraged in that belief. They're encouraged officially because we, we say that they must celebrate their culture and that they don't need to bother about uh, celebrating British culture or becoming part of Britain. Tell us, uh, I've touched on the education. Tell us about where our kind of education system has got it wrong. If you were looking at it and giving, I guess, advice, if you were uh, brought in by whoever the education minister is these days, um, and you were asked to give your input and thoughts, um, what kind of would be your assessment and recommendations on how the problem can be fixed? Focus entirely upon academic education, subjects like mathematics, English and history, Forget things like personal and social study. Forget teaching children anything at all except academic things. Let it lead to the parents or the rest of it. Yeah, the, the more we have taught different things, it seems that the weaker academic achievement Absolutely, is. Because there's no time. They, 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 they don't have time anymore for focusing on academic subjects. 
and of course the understanding that everyone is a winner. I mean, it it may happen in in a primary school, actually, it's happening in a secondary school, but. When you get out of that, when you get into the real world, you realize, well, everyone is not a winner. That's not how um, how things work. But is I guess that's been what we call the long march of the institutions. It's been something that's been developing under the surface for decades, and maybe we're only seeing the bad fruit of it today. Yes, that's true. But it's also a question of this, that a lot of the teaching is geared solely towards the examination so that the aim is to get as many children as possible to get a grade five, say, in mathematics. And that's all that matters. Just make sure that all your children can get that high. Don't worry about getting 100%. They don't need to get 100%. They can get a grade five with, say, 50%. That's great. And the children acquire by osmosis this idea that it's enough to try or it's enough to do your best. It's enough to do get half your sums wrong. You'll still get through the examination. In real life, it's not like that at all. If I uh, start muddling up the minus and negatives in my bank account and I forget that I have a negative quantity and behaviours, I've got too much money and I'll start spending it, my bank manager is not going to say, oh, well, that's all right, you did your best or you tried. And it's not enough if I'm balancing my bank account if I get the answer nearly right. In real life, mathematics all has to be 100%. If I'm measuring a room to see how much carpet I need, I must be completely accurate. All my sums must be right, not 50% of them. And a lot of children that you meet now when they've left school, that's the attitude they've got. Oh, I did my best. Oh, it's nearly right. It's not not enough to be nearly right. Hmm. Tell us about homeschooling because that's something you've written about and you seem to be being quite successful in that so tell us about uh, how you have done education in regards to homeschooling and why well it didn't really occur to me to send my daughter to school I mean she was learning enough I, I taught her to read when she was she she could uh, read simple books when she was 18 months old I uh, taught her things from a very early age. I spent a lot of time with her. And so it just seemed a natural continuation of the process when she was five to, you know, keep her with me. I used to work at uh, under five groups as well, so I would take her to work with me. Um, And you seem to have been quite successful on that. So was that your great ability or is it a failure of the education system? I mean, what was it? What was your secret, I guess? There's no secret, and also we we, can't, we don't know how things would turn out in an alternative universe. It's possible that she would have done really brilliantly if she'd have gone to school. There's no it it it's whatever educational system you use for your child. There's going to be good points and bad points. There's no perfect method. So t- teaching uh, a child at home, you'll you're very much more likely to get good academic results. But then there is a slight loss in that the child doesn't might not get to know how to deal with other people as readily. So oh. it's th- there's no perfect method for educating children. Uh, well, I think all the the great left she did a GCSEs, A levels, university, or the PhD. Uh, maybe you should do that as a full time career, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I don't have patience anymore with other people's children, I'm afraid. <laughs> Can I ask you about a lot of your videos are uh, probably more political 
in their slant. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that, because um, I guess politics comes into everything, but they are very political as opposed to just looking at a historical time and place and giving us that. Tell us why politics is coming into it. Part of it is age, obviously, because the older people get, the more conservative and reactionary they get. I've got no reason at all to suppose that the views I hold now are any better than the views I held as a young man. <laughs> As a young man, I was, uh, you know, very left-wing, very Marxist. And now, of course, I'm a conservative, and I think that the world's going to hell on a fast horse. But that, that's that's simply age. That, that it's, it doesn't mean that the, the ideas that I'm talking about now are more sensible than any others. Old people but, always do this. You must have known. You must have had older relatives and they would tell you how terrible things are now and how much better they were before the war or before Queen Victoria died or something. It, it's just what old people do. I talk. I, that's what, why I talk in that way, I think. But yet today we have access to so much. We have information at our fingertips that generations previously could only have marveled at. And yet we are more dumb than ever on yeah. understanding. How is that disconnect there? Well, it's very simple because people don't look for information on the internet normally. They want to see uh, two kittens on a skateboard or they want to see <laughs> pornography. They don't, they don't go on there to find out who was king of England in 1322, do they? And they, when young people do try, they, they're not discriminating. They'll only look at the first few hits and half the time, if you type something in, you're like as not to get some completely mad and inaccurate site as a, a, you know, an authoritative one. Well, perhaps, and the authoritative ones are often pushed down, so uh, I yeah, get that. Absolutely. Um, on the, uh, on the, the political side, it, it, again, is it immigration I'm I'm guessing, and, and certainly from what I've watched, is a is a big concern because how that affects the makeup, the society of the nation. Is is that been a lot of your focus, or are there also still other areas that uh, keep interesting you? Yeah, I do talk a lot about immigration. That's absolutely true because it seems to be a very big thing, and people don't want to talk about it. But I talk about other things. I mean, I talked a lot about COVID. I got, I've been suspended by YouTube a number of times for saying things about COVID. You know, they get very touchy about it. Perhaps I just want to talk about the things that, that I sense that people are interested in, but don't want, you know, they don't like to talk about them themselves. And what you put out doesn't go through five or six focus groups or question what the plan you're giving it. I think people miss that authenticity uh, in society today. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Everything is filtered and toned down and people double check. Can I say this? Should I say that? And then an editor comes in and changes it all. No, I simply say what I think and what I'm talking, you know, thinking about something. And it's there. It's raw, if you like. It, it says it comes out of me. What has been, you mentioned touching on COVID, we've got lots of backlashes and lots of suspensions for that, but also on immigration, again, is a topic that you're not really supposed to discuss. Uh, what has been the, I guess, 
there there will be a positive response and you can see that in the size of your channel and the engagement and the views but there's another side i guess which is a a negative side to say well you shouldn't really be talking about that have you seen that sort of i guess backlash as well well i have but it's all from um middle class white people rather than black people which is curious I've talked about things, say, for example, the Aksumite Kingdom in Africa, which is in uh, what is now Eritrea. And I've talked about that in the language. Uh, and then I've later had emails from Eritreans saying that they're glad to hear me talking about their culture in that way. And the same thing I've talked about the Khoisan, the Bushmen of South Africa. And I had some Khoisan people get in touch with me about that. And there's been no animosity, no accusations of racism at all by any minority group that's contacted me. The people that object to what I'm saying are white people. And a couple of them have even uh, started YouTube channels themselves to attack me. There's a... There are a small group of people that complain to YouTube about every single video I make, and they boast about it. Whatever I talk about, they complain to YouTube and accuse me of, of inciting hatred. That's how you know you're getting some whenever people start doing videos against you to, to criticize. But it is, I get that shows the lack of understanding in our society, understanding of the the good of the British Empire, what it brought to the world. Uh, look, I, I think it was a poll I saw the other day that something like 25% of young people saw Churchill in a positive light. Yeah. Um, and yet you've got two sides. You've got one, a fascist side from Nazi Germany. Then you've got the West. And now our young people think, actually, what happened in Nazi Germany? Maybe that wasn't so bad. Again, a complete lack of education. And it is... I guess it's quite despairing when you realize where our young people have come to in understanding right and wrong in our history. Yes. Well, as, as regards understanding right and wrong and so on, everything now is moral relativism, isn't it, in education? We're, we're taught, taught not to judge other uh, faiths and other systems and that there is no such thing as an absolute right and wrong and things used to be very different. You grew up in uh, Northern Ireland. I'm sure you were a churchgoer there. Yep. You know that, well, there is such a thing as right and wrong, and there's no two ways about it. And it used to be the case in this country that everything was based on Christianity, the whole education system. That's gone now. And so people feel free to say things like, oh, well, perhaps the Nazis weren't all bad and, you know, we, we mustn't be too critical of this person or that. Do you see any way back? Uh, I'll, I'll ask you a question to think make it a, a a more negative answer. But can I ask you if you see any way back? You mentioned you, Christ, you mentioned the Christianity, you mentioned the church. We've got a very weak church, uh, and the churches that run school, Church of England, often are uh, very weak in their teaching of any sense of morality or framework in society. Absolutely. Um, and then you've got politicians who don't really believe in Britain anymore. They don't even know what that means. So I'm guessing your outlook is not very rosy. It's not at all rosy now. No, not in the least. I think it would be a really good thing if we became a Christian society again. 
And I think it'd be a really good thing if children were taught right from wrong, but I don't see that happening. Um, can I just finish off? You're looking at, I guess, Britishness, and it doesn't matter what you have with people coming in if there's a strong sense of what makes your culture positive. And, and celebrating your culture doesn't mean other cultures necessarily worse. It just means you enjoy, you love, you celebrate, you, there are parts of your society which, uh, which are good. Um, how is it possible to get that message out again to society? I mean, you've got many people, many, I guess, the silent majority who still enjoy being British, who still take pride in that, but it's not something you're ever supposed to talk about. Um, how does that kind of boldness, I guess, come back in society? I don't see that happening. I don't see it's going to come to a point where people start celebrating being British again, not unless there's strong leadership from above and a sea change in the way that politicians behave and think, and the example that Peter set. I don't see it changing. Let me just finish or just by asking you to let us know what people will get on the YouTube channel. How, how often do you put videos out? How long times, are they? Right, I put out videos three times a day, and I talk about current events chiefly, often um, immigration, sometimes religion, sometimes Zionism. And anybody can go on there and they can comment and say whatever they want with absolute assurance. I won't remove any comments. Although having said that, YouTube does. YouTube has an algorithm which removes comments sometimes that they because certain words trigger them. But anybody can come on there and say whatever they please. And the comments get quite lively in the debates. Well, I'd encourage people to jump on. Let me just bring up, as we finish, the YouTube page and people can see what they will find there. And as Simon said, you can scroll through and get videos on a range. So I'd encourage our viewers to go make use of that. There's Ireland run out of space for European refugees, but welcomes those from Africa. Absolutely. And there's so many other, and it's wonderful the way they are short and also longer ones. So a lot of them are four or five minutes and it's easy to click on that, watch that and understand the issue. So I, I love the way you've done it so concisely. Yes, I'd, I'd like just to get my point over fairly quickly. And I think five, if you can't make a point in four or five minutes, then perhaps you're beginning to waffle a bit. Well, before we are accused of waffling, Simon, uh, I will bring it to an end. Thank you so much for coming along. As I said, I have really enjoyed your YouTube channel and I appreciate you coming along and sharing a little bit more of your background and what the channel is there for. So thank you. Thank you for asking me on. It's been a great pleasure. Not on. I hope we will meet in person sometime soon. So uh, I hope that does happen. But let me just finish off with the viewers. Uh, to the viewers, thank you so much for watching. As this isn't a live stream done a few days before, you can watch us on any of the video platforms or you can listen on the go. If you enjoy that on Podbean or any of the podcasting apps, make sure and follow the links all in the description. However you're watching, whatever platform, uh, whichever way, all the links are in the description. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't come across Simon, then go and look at 
History Debunked on YouTube, and I am sure you will find something there which you enjoy, as there's something for everyone. So on that, I'll wish our viewers a wonderful rest of your day and look forward to seeing you on our next interview. So thank you and goodbye. Cheerio. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.